I love Turkey. And when you look at a map of Turkey, everything of tourist interest seems to be in the west. And the east is just empty. But when you travel in Turkey, you realize that there's a lot in the east. That's what we're going to talk about today, some powerful travel opportunities in the east of Turkey. And we're joined by two Turkish tour guides and friends of mine, Lali Sermin Aran and Tan Aran. Tan and Lali, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting us, Rick. Thank you, Rick. Why would anybody bother to go to the hardship of traveling into the wild and rough-and-tumble eastern part of Turkey? Well, that's a hard question to, to answer. Um, Are you saying stay in Istanbul? <laughs> <laughs> Eastern Turkey has some of the qualities still untouched that makes the mosaic of Turkey. Compared to the western part of the country, it's uh, rugged, it's untouched, it's uh, less polluted, and has some of the most must-see sites in Turkey. Yeah. Lolly, what would be the highlights of eastern Turkey for you? Uh, there would be many of them. First of all, the people would be the number one ranking highlight of eastern Turkey. Mm-hmm. They're hospitable, nice, welcoming of visitors. But other than the people, of course, you should realize the history behind what's eastern Turkey today. It's Upper Mesopotamia. The Fertile Crescent. Yes, it's Upper Mesopotamia. So for thousands of years, several civilizations went through, lived in the soil of what we call eastern Turkey today. There are many archaeological and ancient sites you can visit. When you go to the villages, you still see traditions of thousands of years going on. Like in Haran. I was in Haran, and it blew me away. It's the home of uh, Abraham, Abraham of the Old Testament. Exactly. And it would be one of the highlights, Haran and Beehive homes where people lived thousands years ago. Probably Abraham lived in such a home where people still do live. What century would that have been, Abraham? Do you know roughly? Six, well, 600 B.C., something like this? It's speculated. Um, some say about 1,200. Centuries before Christ. Yes. Haran, H-A-R-R-A-N. Exactly. You go there and you go to these beehive homes, these conical mud brick homes, mm-hmm. and it can be uh, 120 degrees outside. And it's cool inside. You step homes. inside, it's incredibly cool. Natural air conditioning that hasn't changed for 2,000 years. Exactly. Functioning in mm-hmm. the 21st century. What else in Haran do you remember? Uh, The university complex. See, very many of the virtues of the Greek culture passed on to uh, the European cultures through Islam initially. Uh, So that is uh, probably one of the first universities in the world history, actually, uh, dedicated to the education of um, teaching of Koran besides other positive sciences and uh, basically interpretations of earlier Greek records. Really? Serious scholarship in Haran? It is. Is this a contemporary university? Or are you saying it's no? A, it's not a, a, an no. It's, that's university. an ancient university. Okay, uh, so dating back to the eight, ninth centuries, and uh, I believe that's one of the most important educational centers of the past. Uh, a center of higher learning in Islam in the Muslim world in um, the eighth century. Yes, and they had this Old Testament Bible roots that they could take into their culture and then spread it through Islam. Kind of that and uh, earlier and Greek records, pre-Christian, pre-Christian yeah. records. Okay, so Western Europe got that through Islam from higher education centers like Haran. Uh, that information went on to Europe by the interpretations of Arabic records. Speaking more of biblical history, you've got Mount Ararat, a conical mountain. It's the tallest mountain, it's a I think, in Turkey. Mountain, yes. 17,000 feet or something like that. Over 5,100 meters. About 16,000 feet or something About. like this. Mount Ararat, standing all alone, it seems. It just towers on the border where Iran and Armenia and Turkey all come together. Yes. And, of course, many people, when they think of Mount Ararat, They think of Noah's Noah's Ark. Ark. And in Turkish tourism, for generations, people have been thinking about Noah's Ark. Have there been expeditions up there? Uh, Not necessarily. There are different theories about that. Some think Mount Ararat is the place. 
where Noah's Ark landed. Some say that's somewhere in the upper Mesopotamia along the southeastern borderline of Turkey. That's more logical because historical documents talk about floods in the Mesopotamian area in the past. Uh, So there are different speculations on the mountain, which mountain that was. Uh, it's likely to be on the southeastern part of Turkey. You guys are breaking my documents. heart. You mean Noah's Ark is not on Mount Ararat? Okay. <laughs> hey, that's like uh, 16,000 feet. I mean, <laughs> well, it was a no big flood. flood. It was a big flood. It was a huge <laughs> flood, biblical proportions. Killed everybody. It flooded everything. There was just like two yeah. unicorns and um, two do horses. Do you remember National Geographic actually was uh, making a research about the Black Sea? Actually, yep. Black Sea was a basin, and uh, that was lower than the sea level. Actually, that was a big problem when the last bit of land collapse to the north of the Bosphorus, and uh, water rushed into the Black Sea Basin. And uh, very many of these tribes actually escaped. That's how they explain it, uh, ended up in the Middle East. There were some expeditions in the past for the search of the Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat. Some of them claim that they have found remnants of very, very old wood items, but they are not identified of what they could be part of. So it's a question mark. And according to the local belief in Turkey, according to the Muslim belief, the Noah's Ark landed on a mountain in Ararat, not on Mount Ararat. Ah, Ararat is the name of a historical region there, mountains of Ararat. So it's Ah. not one mountain. So Muslims have the same story in the Quran. And they interpret it not as Mount Ararat, but as a region called Ararat. Yes, landed on a mountain in Ararat. Oh, so there is a little confusion there, and and, uh, understandably so. Well, there's one indisputable mountain site, and that is Nimrut Da, right? Yes, it is. I've hiked up there at Krakadon, and it's incredible. On the top of this, another solitary mountain, you find these ancient statues built by some megalomaniac king. It was a kingdom. Uh, It was a buffer kingdom between Persia and Greece once upon a time, and their king identified himself with the Greek gods. So therefore, as a mausoleum, he had this mound built on top of a mountain. It's a pile of huge rocks. So this was his mausoleum. He buried himself literally on top of a mountain. And he was a a sort of a thug dictator king of a two-bit mediocre empire or kingdom. Well, we can't really say that. But the kingdom of Komagene, that was the name of the kingdom. Kingdom was a buffer kingdom, buffer zone between Greece and Persia. And it's just kept these two big empires from one okay. another, away from one another. But he must have invested He wanted to be fortune. good to both sides. So that's the reason why uh, most of the gods actually have two different names, one in Persian, the other one in uh, Greek. Okay. They ad- identify themselves with uh, two different cultures. So he had a so little they, dance. He, he, was, he was a clever. He was a political clever. juggler. And, yeah. and he spent a fortune building this megalomaniac mausoleum mm, on yes. top of a mountain. I've, I've seen, there's nothing like it. No, there's nothing like it. It's amazing. And what century does that go back to? 2,000 years old. 2,000 okay. years old. And it's quite an ordeal to get up there, actually. You have to get up early. Uh, you have to ride a van for one and a half hours, basically, winding its way through the uh, rugged terrain. And the last portion, you, you either walk or uh, ride a mule. And it's a fairly long walk. It actually is not that long, but it's steep. Okay, I, say, I remember uh, it as long, but maybe it's because it was steep. And It, uh, when, it is steep. Once you get up there... Especially in the morning, the light is warm and it's um, just gorgeous. Could I suggest uh, to stay there for the sunset? For the sunset? Instead of the sunrise? Gorgeous. Yeah? yeah? Gorgeous. Good. But I wanted, to, I wanted to get back down in the valley for the famous ice cream in that area. <laughs> <laughs> to what? my rush? Yeah. Tell me okay. about the ice cream that's uh, Actually, Lolly is uh, from a town. I'm and, from uh, that city. You are? <laughs> yes. Well, tell me about your favorite ice cream. Kahraman Maraş'ın meşhur dövme dondurması. 
Goulet, goulet. Does that make sense? <laughs> julie, julie. <laughs> no, but this ice cream, you cut it with a knife, right? Yes. It's a special ice cream. Um, it's made with the goat's milk, and there are the crushed roots of the wild orchid flowers picked from the Taurus Mountains. Wow. And this gives a gummy texture to the ice cream. It's not really a gum you can chew, but it stretches it and has got a denser texture. So you can cut it with a knife, and we like it most when we put it on top of baklava and eat it like that. And you put it on baklava? Yes. Well, that's one of my favorite things. Mm-hmm. Say the name of the ice cream again. Kahraman Marış'ın Meşhur Döme Dondurması. I cut the first word because that's the city, right? Yes. What is the city? Kahraman Maraş is the name of the city. Kahraman Maraş'ın Meşhur Döme Dondurması literally translates into famous beaten ice cream of Kahraman Maraş. Famous beaten? Yes. So you beat it? Yes. Until you have to it. cut it with a... While they make it, they beat it. Okay. To obtain the denser texture. Oh, it sounds like an aphrodisiac. It's a good ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's high calorie. High calorie. Okay, good. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Tan Aran and Lali Sermon Aran. They run a tour company. Their website is srmtravel.com. Or you can always connect with them through our website in the radio corner at ricksteves.com. Chris emails us from San Jose, California. And Chris writes, I'd recommend the museum in Gaziantep, which has Roman mosaics from Zugma, the easternmost outpost of the Roman Empire. What's with the, the Roman mosaics there in Gaziantep? It was a small but a very rich community in Zugma once upon a time. It was a garrison, as the listener says. It was a rich community, and the commanders and the higher-ranked people that lived there built very fascinating villas for themselves, decorated with mosaics. And this ancient city and the remnants of it were little known prior to the construction of the Atatürk Dam started. Then, as they were digging for the construction of the dam, they found out about the value of the archaeological remnants there and excavated the mosaics and carried them to the museum in Gaziantep because the ancient city was flooded under the waters of the dam. Oh, that's right, because when they did the Ataturk Dam, which is a mammoth engineering project that took a huge investment of the entire 70 million person country of Turkey yes, exactly. to dam up the uh, Euphrates River and be able to control the floods and irrigate the land and, and uh, make hydroelectricity. Is that all yeah, of what for this all, did? For all that's one of the That's a part of a major project that's been going on for the past uh, three decades or so. And that incorporates more than 30 different dams, uh, reservoirs. That's a huge project. Ataturk Dam is uh, pretty much the biggest of these uh, dams built on the Euphrates and Tigris. People think that's Turkey's future. Because uh, think of eastern Turkey as barren land. You know, right. uh, you need water to yeah. uh, It feels come like a parched, vast See, we're talking about a fertile, fertile crescent of the past, but there was water. Now you've controlled the water. Now it's dry. You, can, you need to control it. You need to give water so to So now you uh, can irrigate back. eastern Turkey because of um, the Ataturk Dam? We gained lots of farming land. But with, are, uh, this project. aren't you making all those thirsty people to the south in Syria and so on a little nervous because you control the uh, faucet of the Oops. big river? <laughs> Tell me what's going on with that. Politics. Uh, that's a major conflict point. But I mean, if I was Syria a Syrian and, and I saw Turkey uh, investing in this huge dam to control the river that was the life spring to my society, I would think Turkey has me by the, um, the controls my water supply. There are international agreements about that, and Turkey gives uh, a lot more water. Is that right? uh, Yes. So there's international community came in and said, Turkey, you can build this dam, but you can't use it to extort Syria. 
They are uh, agreements between two countries, two Turkey countries and, and international agreements at the same time. We were just talking about a Roman mosaics there from 2,000 years ago in Zugma, right? Yes. And uh, that was going to be uh, flooded by the dam, so it was saved mm-hmm. and moved to Gaziantep, mm-hmm. to a great museum mm-hmm. there. And when I was in Turkey, one thing that a, a tourist would notice is that you go to eastern Turkey, there's a lot of military people around. And part mm-hmm. of it is you guys have sort of some kind of a NATO obligation to keep a million men in arms, right? Like a million or so. A million. We keep under arms. You Not see, just the obligation, so, but it's so mandatory just, service in Turkey. So, uh, you know, we got pretty much a million under arms right now. And you see a lot of them in eastern Turkey. Uh, there's quite a few. Now, you got 10 million Kurds there, and there's Kurdish Turks, or there's Kurds that would rather be independent. What's the latest uh, Things changed in struggle? Turkey. I mean, uh, in the past, you know, we, we tried quite a few uh, expressions. We said uh, people of Turkey. We said natives of Turkey. We said uh, citizens of Turkey. But some people out there might want themselves to be identified as Kurds, uh, we got no problems with that. Okay. This is a very um, sensitive issue. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a sensitive Turkey, issue. We, Americans have to mm-hmm. remember that Turkey is not in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. It's a very complicated demographic situation with a lot of difficult times in their past, consequently a lot of baggage today. And we've got this business in Iraq where the top third of Iraq is basically an autonomous Kurdish area now. Mm-hmm. And the concern of Turkey would be that 15% of its population that considers itself of ethnically Kurdish mm-hmm. might feel like, wow, we've got uh, a shot at independence here, but that would take away a, a critical part of Turkey. And Turkey's not going to let that happen any more than the United States would let you know, Washington State join British Columbia on some sort of a movement or a secession. Uh, so you've got that tension, and a tourist gets a, a feel for that when they go through the East. Travelers what? will be welcome. Uh, people of Eastern Turkey, uh, like the rest of the Middle East, are different in that sense. They just uh, do not bother travelers with their own problems. I feel that. It's uh, a very interesting thing. I've been there a lot. If you're part of this society, right. you can go without the rule, okay? If okay. you're part of the society, you have to play by the rule. They don't expect you to, you know, understand or, or do the same thing, but uh, people of Eastern Turkey are quite, I would say, uh, tolerating so it's, in their it's, behavior. If you, if you are arguably involved in the struggle, it might be uh, a different kind of risk situation than if you're a tourist traveling through that region. Civilians do not have a risk. The I problem is between the military, basically, and uh, uh, insurgents. Yeah. I felt very comfortable throughout eastern Turkey. And I'll tell you, when you sail Lake Van and, and when you go to Gaziantep or, or Diyarbakir and you find the pride that people have for their corner of Turkey, it's really a very rewarding place to travel, even though it is a long way to go and uh, it lacks the, the famous sort of uh, marquee sites. You're going to have a rich experience with the people and the uh, different ethnicities. That's correct. It's the ethnicity that makes up... Uh this land. What you know about the Middle East today is uh, just conflicts. You, you talk about Middle East, it's conflicts in your mind. But in the past, Middle East was the very cradle of civilizations. Not a clash point, but a mosaic of uh, cultures. And when we travel, we can celebrate that diversity, especially when we go one step beyond the norm and go to a place like eastern Turkey. Lolly, if you're taking a, a group of Americans to a town somewhere in eastern Turkey and you want to celebrate the cultural diversity of that area... Take me on a walk through the market and, and explain to me how I would see such a festival of different cultures all gathered together. I guess I would take you to the city of Mardin, which is north of Syria. It's a border city. It's a place where the Syrian Orthodox of the Turkish people live. The Syrian Orthodox still speak Aramaic, the language of Jesus. I would take you to a walk through the market of Mardin to hear different languages spoken Turkish, Arabic, Aramaic, and then visit the temples of different religions. 
and finally end up in a Syrian Aramaic church to listen to the prayer of our Holy Father in Aramaic. In the same language Jesus spoke? Yes. And that's in the town of Mardin, M-A-R-D-I-N, yes. just over the border from Syria, yes. in eastern Turkey. And Ton, if you were to take an American visitor to some village or some place in eastern Turkey to be able to celebrate the ethnic and cultural diversity, what would you do? I would take you out to uh, summer pastures of the uh, nomads without the ID cards. Kurdish nomads in the easternmost part of the country on a plateau. Um, Who don't have elevation ID is like, cards. Uh, what do you mean by... Th- they're not citizens. These people do not know anything about that. They just uh, cross the border between Iran and Turkey every year to go to their summer pastures. And that's very close to Lake Van, just to the north of Lake Van, at an elevation of uh, 8,500 feet, more or less. And uh, that's where you find the real people of the East. Would these be black tents? There'd be black tents all around. And it the... would be a real nomad camp or village or town. And a tourist could actually do that. Uh, you need connections you need a, this. You need a guide, you need but you can do that. This. And you must shake your head you and need just think, local content. this is a timeless wonder. Sitting, sure drinking tea with these nomads where Iran and Turkey come together. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Taneran, Lali Sermeneran, thanks a lot for taking us to the eastern half of your country. Thank you for coming with us. Thank you, Rick. Teşekkür. Rijayet eriz. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for Istanbul, Athens, and every other corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com. <laughs>